I, uh, I'm Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. We'll enter now into our time of teaching. If you were not here last week, uh, and I think we actually cut it from the uh, online recording, you won't know what this is a drawing of, so you're going to have to ask somebody about that. Say, hey, were you here last week? What is that about? It's a classic tale of murder, mystery, intrigue. You've got to ask somebody if you weren't here. If you don't know what that is all about, you've got to ask somebody. So I, w- I, would, uh, <laughs> I would ask you now to grab uh, a Bible if you've got one. Uh, if you don't, there's two options. There's these little, you might look around and see if there's a few of these blue journals. This is the Gospel of John, which is what we'll be studying throughout this uh, next year. Uh, the Gospel of John, and uh, we bought some journals for you. So these, these have a place that has the scripture and then a place for notes. So if you haven't picked up one of these yet, this is yours. Write your name in it and bring it each and every week. Take it to your cadres. Take it home. Study on your own. Circle. Highlight uh, as you learn in the Word of God. Uh, the other option, if you don't see one of these around you, is there's some, uh, ones, some Bibles that look like this uh, in the seat back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you can take that home with you as well. And so we're going to be in the Gospel of John. John is in the New Testament, so that's all the writings that came after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And uh, if you have a copy, a black version, we're going to be on page 941, if you want to turn there. Um, and if you're in the prayer journal, or the scripture journal, this is on page one, page one, so a little bit easier there. Um, you know, last week I told, I'm just, I'm just feeling like oh, I want to share about my life with you guys, so I'm going to just share one, I just like a quick confession, you know. Uh, we talked about last week the five C's at Sedaris, we did a sermon series uh, a little over a year ago called the five C's, where we, it's, it's sort of the rhythm of how we find life uh, as, as uh, people in community, and so what we talked about is we connect, that's the first C, and that connection leads to conversation. And that conversation stirs things up that need to be considered. And considering is when you get your soul into it. And then when you're considering, uh, you're providing space now for the Spirit of God to convict you. And uh, this is not just of sin, but of truth or of error or of, it could be anything. And I'm going to share a a very low bar uh, conviction that I had uh, this week. Uh, But then the next thing to do after you experience that conviction is, you confess it, which is you say it out loud, and that conf- uh, confession leads to more connection, and then that connection leads to more conversation. So feel free to ask me about this, or if this has been your experience, I'm going to share a little five C's that I went through this week. Uh, just the other day, I, was, I woke up in the morning, and you know, I made myself a cup of coffee, and um, started to drink the coffee, and I was like, I didn't want coffee. didn't taste good to me. I usually always enjoy coffee. And I thought to myself, well, why did I think I would like coffee? And then I did some considering. I was having a little conversation with myself. You can see how this goes. I was considering, why did I make this cup of coffee? I, I kind of knew oh, I probably wouldn't like it. And I said, you know what? And the conviction came into my heart. So I'm confessing it now to you. I made that cup of coffee because I wanted to eat five donut holes. <laughs> and I realized it just... <laughs> It was my excuse <laughs> to, to eat the donuts. I thought, if I have coffee, I could have the donuts. Confession. Now we're connected. Feel free. If you've had this experience where you, <laughs> you've made a cup of coffee just so you could eat a pastry of some sort, 
you're in good company. That's my confession for the day. So I feel better now. I feel like feel free now. I can preach. So we're gonna we're gonna preach from uh, the Gospel of John, and we're gonna do our second part in the story of John the Baptist. Uh, also, we've been calling him John the Baptizer. He's not like a Baptist, uh, like the denomination of Christian churches. They called him the Baptist because he was baptizing people in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. So they call him John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. Um, so we're going to be there in John chapter 1. Now, before we read today's passage, I'm actually going to take us back to the prologue just in case you're new with us so you can see the fullness of what John is trying to do. Uh, I wanted you just to picture your favorite uh, sort of epic uh, war movie or you know, think of like The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings or whatever you tend to like. It's almost in every kind of epic uh, story that includes war. This always happens, so I want you to think about this. Uh, the battle's always going along, and um, the struggle is intense, and, and it's ebbing and it's flowing, and it always gets to that point where it looks like the evil folk are going to win the battle, right? There's always that moment in the movie. And then in many movies, something always happens, right? Where just when you think it's over for the good guys and the protagonists, the, they come to this moment of surrender, and then they turn and they look over the hill. And what's coming? Help. Help is on the way. So maybe in The Hobbit, it's you know, the army of eagles comes in. This is a common, common uh, trope in, in, in movies and cinema. You know what I'm talking about? Just give me some verbal affirmation. If you're the only, yeah, okay, thank you. So I want you to have that in the back of your mind as we're going through this story. Because the reason every blockbuster has that is because they're just little shadows or reflections of the true story. The story that John is referring to, the cosmic story of God. That battle, which is real, and the salvation that comes over the hill. So that's what I want you to be thinking about, that moment. That moment resonates in the heart, not just of Christians, but of all people. Why is that? Well, Scripture tells us that eternity, or you could say, the story of God is written already on everyone's heart. So it's a great way to sell movie tickets. That's the first thing I want you to think about. The second thing I want you to be thinking about during this uh, sermon is that I want you to be asking yourself the question, what do you see when you see Jesus? What do you see when you see Jesus? And this is such a fascinating and interesting question because People can see the exact same person. It's acknowledging that you probably are distracted by your deep connections with the things of this world. And so baptism is a way of, of, of reminding yourself that you need to detach from those things if you're going to attach to something new. Okay? So that's a baptism of readiness. Now, I'm not saying you need to be baptized in order then to have a revelation of Jesus in the Christian sense. Because in the Christian sense, we're talking about a baptism of the Holy Spirit. John's saying, I'm just doing a baptism of uh, cleansing or renewal readiness, okay? You go back and listen to this last week. And then the third thing we said, you need to expect to be surprised. 
And um, so many of us don't live our life expecting to encounter God, expecting Him to reveal Himself. And I forgot to say this last week. I saw it in my notes. like, oh, I forgot to use that analogy. It's like on your birthday when you're like, okay, so I just turned 40, and I thought maybe on my 40th birthday I'd get like a surprise party. So I was living in angst all day. Like I didn't want to be, I don't like being surprised. I like figuring out the mystery before. Like don't go to a movie with me. If I figure it out in the first five minutes, I'll tell you just to get credit when it, when it happens. Okay, sixth sense, got it. First five minutes. Whispered it, and they're like, why'd you do that? Okay. So I'm creeping around on my 40th birthday thinking I might get surprised. That's how we should live our life. Creeping around wondering, when's God, when's God going to reveal himself? That's what I mean to expect to be surprised. Just, just like that. Okay. But I forgot. There was a fourth thing, and my good brother Tom Mullins, he reminded me. I forgot to, to make this explicit, what was implicit. This is the fourth thing, and it might be the first thing, really, but I, I wanted to highlight it now, the thing that, that, that maybe you missed it last week. Maybe I didn't say it clearly. All of those things don't mean anything if you aren't able to admit or acknowledge or understand that you need a revelation, that you need a Savior. This is that deep spiritual acknowledgement that something deep down in this world, in yourself, in those you love, is not right. It's off. There's something broken deep in the subterranean level of things. And those things need fixing if we are to experience all that we long for. And if you don't get to that place, all of these other, if you don't think you need that, you will not experience the revelation of God. You'll miss it. John the Baptist and, and his whole bunch of followers that were with him out in the wilderness experiencing his baptism of readiness. They were aware of that. They understood that all the other things that they had hoped in, all the other things that they expected to save them, they couldn't carry the weight of that brokenness. It was not working. The thing they longed for could not could not be had by everything that they'd tried in the past. So that is an essential piece of preparing yourself for a revelation. It's getting honest that you need salvation. Go back, go back to our movie war analogy. You will never look to the hill if you think you can win the battle yourself. You will never look to the hill if you don't actually think you're in a battle. Do you understand that there's a war raging around you? Do you understand that things are so deeply broken at a deep level that just goodness and kindness won't fix all of those things, that we need something more? Do you understand that? And if you don't, you will not experience the revelation when it comes. So that's where we were. How do you prepare yourself? So why is this worth bringing up again? This is worth bringing up again because, one... In a real sense, still today, this is the only part of your spiritual journey that you have any control over. 
and I know most of you, you are addicted to control. So I wanted to let you know. <laughs> you have some agency. You have some agency. Your agency, though, only comes in the preparedness for the revelation. So, for all you control freaks, this is what you can control. Are you confessing or not? Are you experiencing a baptism of readiness? Are you removing yourself from the distractions so that you might be clear-minded, both in a spiritual sense and in a physical sense, to, to see God when he shows up? Are you expecting to be surprised? And do you know that you need help and salvation bigger than anything you've tried? Okay, so you can control that so that when he decides to reveal himself, just like he finally does to John the Baptist, just like he does to the boys that are out there with John, just like he does to those who were experiencing John's baptism of repentance and preparedness, the same is true today. When he reveals himself, when he chooses to do that, you are ready, and you don't miss it. Because that's the second thing that we see in John's gospel and in all the gospels. There is something to be missed you can miss it. Let me show you where I see this. Look at uh, verse 30 and 31. John says this. 30 and 31. This is the one I told you about. And then he quotes himself. Pretty cool when you can quote yourself. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Remember when I said that? That's what John said. Remember when I said that? This is him. I did not know him. And he's not saying here, I didn't know him. Remember we said John is a relative of Jesus, probably like a second or third or fourth cousin of some sort. Mary, when she became pregnant before her wedding day, went to John's mother Elizabeth, who was much older than her, to kind of hide out for a bit, to be encouraged for a bit, because it was not good that she because of the Holy Spirit came upon her, became pregnant before her wedding to Joseph. So they knew. They knew each other. What is John talking about? I did not know him. He said, I didn't know he was that. I didn't know he was the one. I mean, like I knew him. He's my cousin. But I didn't know that he was the one. That's what John's saying. He's, again, humbling himself to say, I mean, I was around him. I saw Jesus all the time, or at least many times in my life before, and I didn't know until that moment when God revealed it. I didn't know. He's the one. Okay. So he's saying, I didn't know. But I came baptizing with water. I did the thing God told me to do, so that he might be revealed to Israel. What's John talking about? Is John saying it's because of him that Jesus has been revealed? No. I like the translation in the message. It says it, says, it, says it this way. He says, it says this, is to get Israel ready to recognize him. I came baptizing with water, just as God told me to do, to get Israel ready to recognize Jesus when his time came. That's what John's saying. 
He's saying, listen, I didn't even recognize him as the Messiah, first off. But God said, go get the people ready to recognize him so that when they come, what? They don't miss it. So that's why I bring up last week. Last week is so important. There is so much work we can do to ready ourselves so that we don't miss it when God reveals himself. So don't think you have no part in this. You do have part in it. You don't have the most important part. But you're not a robot either. God is going to reveal him when it's time in your life and you can be ready for it so that you recognize Jesus for who he is when God decides to reveal him to you. Beautiful picture we have here of how salvation works. Okay, let's keep going. Let me reread the whole section again, start to finish. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. Remember when I said, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me? I did not know him, but I came baptizing with water so that he might be recognized by Israel. And John testified. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he rested on him. He rested on Jesus. I did not know him before that, but he who sent me to baptize with water had told me that the one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So now I see, I have seen, and I now testify that this is the Son of God. Okay? You, you, you catch what's going on here. Now, this is kind of confusing maybe for you if you've never read the other Gospels. Now, for those of us who have read the other accounts of John the Baptist, we're filling in blanks as we go, right? I just want, if, you ha- if, you, if, you, if those blanks are already filled in for you, I want you to zoom out a second and, and, and ask yourself, what, what's, what is he not saying here? He's not telling us when, when this spirit descended like a dove and rested on Jesus. He just leaves it out. Isn't that interesting? And it goes back to what we talked about in our introduction sermon. If you haven't listened to that, go listen to that. It'll, it'll help bring alive all of John's. John is the last of the four gospel writers, and he's writing like two decades after the others have been written. And the stories about Jesus have already been being told in an oral society where the stories have been told. So John here is assuming that you know already when that spirit descended. He doesn't actually say, does he? So we have to look elsewhere, and I'm going to do that real quick to show you what John's assuming that you know, because I don't want to assume that you know this. This is 2,000 years later. Pretty amazing how many of us know about Jesus' baptism, but Jesus actually came to John when John was in the wilderness in the Jordan River baptizing and said, John, I'd like you to baptize me as well. Let's read some of those accounts. So Matthew 3.16 tells us this. You throw it up on the screen there, Cameron. Okay, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, 
the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So that's how Matthew describes it. So we get a clear, at his baptism, when he comes up out of the water, this is what's happening. Mark says the same thing, Mark 1.10. says, and when he, that's Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And then Luke says the same thing. Luke 3 says, and the Holy Spirit descended on him, that's Jesus, in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So each of the gospels sort of adds brushstrokes to this experience, this important experience of Jesus going to his second, third cousin, John, asking John, I'd like to participate with the rest of them in a baptism because my father's told me to do that. And when that happened, it was the revelation moment the first revelation to anyone that Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one. And John, only in John's gospel do we understand what that meant. We didn't have John's gospel. That's part of why John wrote his. He's like, there's more to the story. Let me explain exactly, as I've been told, what happened on that day. Only in John's gospel do we see that John the Baptist had actually been told by God, through a prophecy, that the one who the Spirit descended on and rested on was, in fact, the anointed, the Savior. So I'm glad we have John. But it's happening at his baptism. And, and what we realize by that is that John, the Baptist, didn't know until that moment that Jesus was the Messiah. And if you, a student of Scripture, you'd be like, and even once he knew, there were still times where I was like, could it be? And I love that too. God can tell you, I'm going to do this. God can do that, confirming that. And then you can still have some doubt. That's okay. Even John the Baptist had those moments where he's like, he's sitting in prison. <laughs> he's like, I didn't think it was going to go this way after that revelation. <laughs> but it doesn't mean the revelation didn't happen. So this is, the, this is John uh, filling out the painting, the picture of this incredible moment. And John gets to be the first witness, that is the first apostle, the first witness of Jesus' royal anointing by God the Father as the true Son, as the true Messiah, as the true King. That's how kings were always um, called by God. A prophet would go to them and anoint them and the dove coming down and descending on Jesus, like a dove. It wasn't an actual dove, but it was something that was visible. That's why Luke says in bodily form, meaning it was visible. There was something like a dove that rested on Jesus, which was the Holy Spirit, and that was his anointing. Again, over and above simply the anointing with oil, he was actually anointed with the Holy Spirit. So, Amazing moment. Now, look at verse 33 with me. Read that again. Okay. I did not know him as the Messiah, as the King, as the chosen Savior. But he who sent me to baptize with water, 
He told me, the one you see the Spirit descending, descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So, when God told John this, he was also telling John that not only is Jesus the one true awaited Messiah in the line of King David, but he said also he's going to do something totally different. I remember he said last week, people have been doing sort of ritualistic baptisms or cleansings. That was not something revolutionary or new to the Jewish people or to other ancient Near East religions or even other world religions. You have this sort of idea of, of cleansing in a river or whatnot. But God had told him, the one that's coming is not just another man. This Messiah will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And so when we celebrate, I just want to make this point clear, when we celebrate baptism as a church, we are celebrating the fact that an individual has now been baptized by Jesus through the Holy Spirit. That there has been a eternal, heavenly cleansing that has happened that is so much more than just water. I want to make that point clear because Jesus didn't come to do something that had already been done. He came to do something totally new. No one else could baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is utterly different. Not only in who he is as the God-man, fully God, fully man, but also in what he does. I baptize you with the Holy Spirit, Jesus says. And again, make sure you see this. In all of this narrative, who is the primary actor? God. He is the one that initiates. He's the one that gave John the Baptist the message of how he would point out his anointed one. He is the one who actually sent the Spirit to baptize and anoint Jesus. So God the Father is actually the one anointing Jesus. God is then the one who opens the eyes of John to see this spiritual truth. And so in all things, God is preeminent. He's always the first actor. So important to see that. And John, again, we talked about this last week, is trying as hard as he can to make this point clear. The only thing special about John the Baptist is that he obeyed God. He didn't have some hyper uh, spiritual power that others don't have. All he had was his obedience to the things God told him. God acts. God reveals. God sends. And God saves. So what about these words? Hold on a sec. What about these words? I want to unpack this very special exclamation. Look, back in 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God. Let me insert the word actually. You could put that in your notes in your journal if you want. Behold, the Lamb of God who actually takes away the sins of the world. Why do I insert actually there? 
There's this really, in the narrative structure of what John's doing, there's this really interesting parallel you might have missed. I missed it the first time. I needed the help of commentators to show me this. <clears throat> Last week, what happened? There's some folks that came from Jerusalem who were super religious. They were like the most religious people you've ever met. These people have been like elected for being super religious and super good at keeping the rules. And they're coming and walking from far off. And they show up. And what do they bring with them? Nothing. They don't know who John is. They don't know about this coming Messiah. They're ignorant, impotent. And they're supposed to be the ones that can take away sin. The Levites and the priests. That was their job in Israel. I think John is doing many, many things here. One of them is he's juxtaposing the religious elite, the religious system, right next to Jesus. Those Levites, those priests, they come, they can't really do anything for you. And it's not really their fault. They were always meant to be, uh, their job actually was to fail. That's a terrible job when you realize that. Like you, they, the whole sacrificial system, everything the Jews had been doing was just preparing for this moment when the one who came who could take away the sin of the world would show up. They needed hundreds and hundreds of years to realize that those Levites and those priests couldn't actually take away sin. That's why they had to do that over and over again. That's why they had to sacrifice things over and over again. That's why they were continuously continuously cleaning themselves. So John says, look, here's someone who actually can take away the sin of the world right up next to each other. You see that? The Levites and the priests come. They can't do anything. Then another person comes and walks up. John says, that's the one that can take away the sin of the world. I don't think it's unintentional. This dude, Jesus, is different. Now think back to that war picture. When John says, Behold, look, he's not just saying, um, it's, it's more than just say, making a declarative statement. The way he's saying it is so important. Think, think in your movie. The way the movie's always set up is like, we've heard about this other army, or we've heard that these people are, are allies, or we've heard that they might come. So it's always an, it's an idea that it could happen. It's an idea that there's hope. It's an idea that there's salvation. But it's still just an idea until they actually show up in the flesh. That's all packed into that word, behold, so the Greek word there is actually, it's all about the visceral and physical sense of looking and seeing. Look, see, touch. It's actually here. We'd always heard about it. There was always this idea that God would show up. There was always this idea that there'd be a Messiah. There was always this idea that there's salvation. John the Baptist's whole ministry is about this idea. But then when it actually shows up in the flesh and you can actually see it and you can actually touch it, 
That's what it's all wrapped up in. Behold, it's actually here. Salvation is actually here. That's the sense. It's not just a romantic idea of second chances or bettering yourself. There's an actual Savior, and I see him now, John says. And even though I believed it, I believed it in a sense, now I see it. That's what's going on here. Oh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You feel that? I didn't know. I mean, I, I thought, but I didn't know if they'd actually come over that hill. And then they do. All that tension's wrapped up right in this moment. And John, the, the apostle, or the gospel writer, is trying to extract that. Hold. What's he say? So what's the content of his declaration? The Lamb of God. What's that mean? What's that mean? Now, here's an interesting, before I tell you what I think that means, let me just tell you maybe an even more interesting piece to this. Well, there's nothing more interesting than what it actually means, especially if you don't know what it means. So I'll get there if you don't know what it means. But there's this really interesting sense I want to I talk about this. What did John have in mind when he said that? When he said those words, the Lamb of God, like what, what did he actually know he was saying versus what, what was he prophesying? This is so, this is, let me, you're like, this isn't interesting to me yet. Hold on, okay. Why is this interesting? Okay. I think that what John was doing was proclaiming things that he knew only in part with the knowledge in his historical moment that he had, okay? This is a really important point. When he said, behold the Lamb of God, he was expressing something that God, again, taking the initiative, revealed in his heart. He didn't know that Jesus was going to go to the cross. He didn't know how it would play out. All he knew is God revealed in his heart at the soul level, that's the Lamb. He couldn't have known what would come next. Otherwise, he would have told us. God didn't want him to know exactly how this would happen, how Jesus would take away the sin of the world. He just revealed to him what he revealed, and John exclaimed it. Behold the Lamb of God. Why is this so profound? Here's what I think is happening. John is the first person to ever experience this, and I think we all experience this, hopefully, in our life. This is John's soul singing. His soul is singing before his mind catches up. It's part of why singing is so important. We can sing a truth as true even if we don't understand all the lyrics and, and what they mean. I can guarantee you 90% of the songs you sing, you don't realize <laughs> exactly where they come in the story of God and the Bible and all this stuff. They're, it's okay because you're singing them with your soul because you know they're true. 
And it happens to us, just like it happens to John. I think more often than not, our soul sings truth, the Lamb of God, Jesus Messiah, my Savior. Our soul sings that often before our brains can fully comprehend it. So we say, I know it's true in my heart. Then I study, then I read, unpack the scriptures and all the things God has been doing for millennia, and now I know in my head at an even deeper level. That's such a common, that's, I I love that we have that picture with John the Baptist, that he can know that this is the Lamb of God before he understands and definitely before the book of Hebrews is written, and before 1 John is written, and before all the scripture is written that tells us why he's the lamb. You see that? I want that to be freeing for you. We, I mean, Seattle is one of the most educated cities in all of the country, and therefore all of the world. There are more post-undergrad uh, degrees per capita in Seattle than any other city in, in the United States. We're a very thinking, smart people. And sometimes we get stuck thinking we need to understand everything that God is doing before we allow our hearts to get involved. Because that feels scary and unsafe. And it is. But you've got to let your soul sing. When you behold Jesus and your soul is singing, it's true, Let it go, and then do the work after the fact to understand why. That's what John had to do, and he didn't even get to see it. He gets beheaded before Jesus ever goes to the cross. I I didn't even think about it until now, how ironic that is to what I'm saying. He gets his head chopped off. He didn't have time to have his head come along. morbid I know I didn't think about it (laughs) but his soul sang and it sang the greatest song and it gave us a way forward so when you encounter Jesus does your soul begin to, to want to sing and if it does let it go don't hold it back you'll have plenty of time to bring your head along let the soul sing I love that We'll have a chance to sing a new song this week that has the line, Then Sings My Soul. And when we sing that, we're going to sing it twice because I really love this song. I want, maybe you have a chance to exercise this, to get your head out of the way and let your soul sing. Even if you're not completely sure in the head how this all fits together, don't worry about that. Let the soul sing. And when the soul sings, you begin to know it's true. So John's soul is singing here. And what is it singing? Because we don't just sing in unintelligible words. We sing in content. God is a a God of order and logic and revelation of true things that we can come to know. So as the soul is singing, the content does matter. And what's the content? He says, this is the lamb. What does it mean to be the lamb? Two senses, this could mean. This could mean the Lamb of Revelation that John also wrote that talks about the Lamb 
as the victor. I think we have that, uh, a scripture up here from Revelation. There's several places in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, predicting the end future times. It says this, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Is John talking about that future sense of the lamb as victor? Or is he talking about this other sense of lamb as sacrifice? Or is he talking about both? I think he's talking about both. Let me show you a few other ways in which Jesus is the lamb. I think we can be sure that he's thinking about lamb as sacrifice because of the words that we also have, who takes away the sins of the world. Now, this is like total conjecture, but we talked about when the way John writes his gospel, he's writing it more like a, like a movie than he is like a, a documentary. And so the question I, always, I had in my mind as I was reading this is did John, when John exclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God, did he say, who takes away the sin of the earth? Or is that more like a parenthetical in, insert by John, the gospel writer, to clarify for people? I'm not going to answer that for you. Look down at verse 36. This is part of why I think maybe John only had enough information to say the Lamb of God because it was a, a prophetic utterance. Uh, because in, in, in 36, it says, this is the next day, two of John's disciples, uh, they see Jesus. And it says, when he saw Jesus passing by, John the Baptist once again said, look, the Lamb of God. And there he doesn't say, who takes away the sin of the earth. So perhaps John was just going around every time he saw Jesus exclaiming, Behold, the Lamb of God! That was sort of his thing. But it does, again, don't get hung up in that. He is saying when he says he's the Lamb of God that he takes away the sin of the world. I'm just geeking out here on, it's unimportant. It, it is that he takes away the sin of the world. This is what God wants us to know that John was saying. So what does it mean that he takes away the sin of the world? Now, this could be a reference back to a foundational story in Judaism, which is Abraham, Abraham, who had great faith in God, and God told Abraham to take his son and to sacrifice him to show that he loved God more than anything else. And so Abraham takes his son, Isaac, up onto a mountaintop and, and pain, I mean, wrestles with God, but puts his son there on the altar and with knife in hand, willing to go through with it, God says, stop. And out of the thicket comes a ram or a lamb to take the place of Abraham's son. So in a real sense, I do think this is an allusion to that lamb, but not just that lamb. If you want to go read about that, go to Genesis chapter 22. Lamb is all over the Old Testament. Then... After Abraham and his descendants, the people of Israel are in slavery in Egypt. God raises up Moses. Moses comes. We have the ten plagues on, uh, on Egypt. The final, the final curse or plague is that the firstborn son is killed. Of anyone who doesn't have what? The blood of the lamb painted over their doorpost, which is the people of Israel had. Because God told them, slaughter a newborn lamb, put the blood over the doorpost, and when the angel of death comes into Egypt, 
God will know who are his people who trust him and obey him, and they will be rescued, saved. So it could be referring to that, and I think it is. It could be referring to the whole sacrificial system, which is, again, a reference to Abraham and then a reference to the Exodus where lambs are sacrificed for the forgiveness of sin. And it could be also related to the prophecy of the coming one. The answer is all. So let me just read for you Isaiah 53, 7, which is one of the great prophetic uh, prophecies about Jesus. It says this, um, The coming one, the Messiah, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So we have all of these projections, prophetic, about the coming one being Savior from sin. And I think when John proclaims that, it's, that statement has all of them in purview. Maybe John doesn't realize it, but God obviously does. That Jesus is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what does it mean that he takes away the sin of the world? This is an important phrase. Eleven times John uses this in his gospel. Half of the time, it means to remove, and half of the time, it means to destroy. I think both are true in the Lamb of God prophetic utterance of John the Baptist. That Jesus, when he came and ultimately died on the cross, he removes our sin in a legal sense. We are no longer longer seen by God as guilty because our guilt was placed on Jesus as our sacrifice, and when that sacrifice died, the debt, the legal debt was removed. In another sense, Jesus, as our lamb, also destroys the power of sin in our life. Sin no longer lives in the way it once did. When you come to Jesus, yes, you will still struggle with sin. You will still fall in. You will not be perfect after you come to Jesus. But sin's power is destroyed. It no longer means for you what it once did. And so when Jesus came, when John saw him, prophetically says, this is the lamb who takes away, removes our sin, and destroys its power. Sin's on its last leg. It's limping around right now, trying as hard as it can to ruin the good life God wants for you now. But it's destroyed by the power of Jesus on the cross. The Lamb has conquered, is victorious over sin, over death, and over the evil one. You can be sure of it, John says. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Praise be to God. The final piece of that statement that I want to make clear. Of the world. What is he saying? John is saying something so amazing. He didn't say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Israel. That's what the Levites would have said. Guys, come to us. We can help Jewish people get rid of their sin. Jesus is different. 
He can take away the sin of all the world. For anyone of any background, of any ethnicity, of any religious origin, when you come to Jesus, he can take away your sin. John's not saying Jesus removes all sin no matter what anybody does. He's saying now the whole world has access to the power of God's salvation. Not just Israel, but all the world now can see their salvation in Jesus. So let's zoom out and pull it all together now. And to do that, I want to I just read for you real quickly from Luke's description of John the Baptist's baptism of Jesus. So you don't have to turn there with me. Just listen. You can if you want. Luke chapter 3. Luke gives us even more detail about John the Baptist. He says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, while Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Ateria and Trachodius, and Lysanias, tetrarch of uh, Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas. God's word came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. See the detail of Luke? Luke saying, in real history, when these people were ruling, now we can even go look up these historical figures. This guy John, who was the son of Zechariah, who was himself a Levite, this John was in the wilderness baptizing people. He went into the vicinity of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. So what John does in part, now Luke had already done in more detail. Luke is going to actually quote from several Isaiah passages. But Luke writes it this way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So you remember that from John. But then he adds to it. Every valley will be filled and every mountain hill will be laid, made low. That's the way to make a, a straight road, isn't it? You've got to cut through mountains. You've got to add dirt to bring up the roadway so that it's smooth. The crooked will become straight. The rough ways, smooth. That's what John was doing, preparing the way of the Lord. And then he says this. He says, and everyone will see the salvation of God. Everyone will see the salvation of God. That's what John came to do, to help everyone in all the world, throughout all history, see the salvation of God. When John says, Behold the Lamb of God, he proclaims for all history so that 2,000 years later, across many an ocean, we might see our salvation. This is what I like to call beholding your salvation. This is what you need in your life. First and foremost, you must behold your salvation. I open up by saying, when you see Jesus, what do you see? A great teacher, 
an odd historic figure, a religious icon. What do you see? I want you to picture now, if you need to close your eyes, you can do it. If you want to keep them open and look at this cross. I want you to picture Jesus hanging on the cross. Bloodied, beaten, crown of thorns, king of the Jews, inscripted above him, hanging. Hanging and dying. What do you see? Many have seen that and pitied Jesus. What a terrible thing to happen to such a good man. I hate that that happened to Jesus. Makes me sad. I pity him. Many have looked at Jesus and mocked him, including people on that day. If you are who you say you are, save yourself. How crazy is it that you Christians worship a Savior who died on a Roman cross? Many, maybe even you, have mocked him. But there's a third thing you can see. When you see him on the cross, do you weep tears of salvation? Do you behold your salvation? Do you see the Lamb of God given freely by God on His own will, according to His own plan, for His own purposes, hanging, dying for you to take away your sin, to pour His love out on you through His blood? Do you behold your salvation when you look at that cross? Now perhaps you're saying to yourself, because I've been here too, I understand, Dave, for you, but I don't care much for myself. I don't think I deserve to be saved. When people say that to me, or when I've said that to myself, I would encourage you to do this. Maybe you're not ready to say for yourself, behold my salvation. I want you to think about somebody you love. Sometimes I cry the most tears of salvation when I behold the cross, when I think about my sister Kim. Behold Kim's salvation. When I think about my sister Kaylee, behold my sister Kaylee's salvation. When I think about my wife, behold my wife, Allie's salvation. When I think about my kids, behold, Grayson's salvation. Behold, Owen's salvation. It's hard for me to love myself because I know me so well. I know I don't deserve it. When I think of them, I say, behold their salvation. And the t these are tears of joy. Not pity, not mockery. God died for the people I love. Behold, salvation, salvation of God.
Let's pray.